Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send your email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I finally found a potential free and open source replacement to Simple Help. Now, I have to tell you right off the bat that the bar is high. Simple Help, if you don't remember, is a self-hosted remote support software, and it has been phenomenal. I, I don't have enough good things to say about Simple Help and what it has been able to do for my business. The ability to log into a dashboard and have all of the remote enrolled clients there, as well as gathering metrics. This is something that I think that SimpleHelp does a lot better than TeamViewer, is that it, it gathers uh, metrics on the computer, how much RAM is in use, how much storage space is left, all those kinds of things, what processes are running and, and, and um, when they lock up, those kinds of things, enabling us to do f a far better job as an MSP managing people's systems. But of course, the big hangup has been that it's not open source. Now, it's self-hosted, so I don't have to worry about SimpleHelp just going away. I, I run the server, it's mine. If they cease to exist tomorrow, I'll still be able to use SimpleHelp. But it would be nice to get that onto a, a, a remote system that I trust and, uh, and a software license that I trust. Enter Remotely.one. Remotely is smooth remote desktop, remote scripting, and rich autocomplete uh, to maximize your IT support efficiency. Uh, basically, it's a FOSS replacement of SimpleHelp. Um, they support Windows and Linux devices. They have unattended and attended access, which means that, you know, for the clients that you manage their IT infrastructure end-to-end, -end, you would install the unattended asks access so that you don't need to request permission each time you want to remote mode into a machine. But... For the one-off people that come and stop by the site and need some help, you have the opportunity to uh, to just have a one-off uh, download that they run, and then you're able to remote into their machine. They support remote scripting for both Windows PowerShell, PowerShell Core, Bash, uh, and traditional uh, DOS command lines. They have optional WebRTC support for peer-to-peer -peer screen uh, transfer on Windows agents, which reduces the load on the server. And uh, they support drag-and-drop file transfer, remote audio streaming, bi-directional clipboard sharing, integrated chat, and two-factor authentication, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, one of the things that I have thought about numerous times is um, when you have all of these machines enrolled into a central server, security becomes paramount. And so we try to stay really on top of only the people that absolutely need access to that remote system get it um, because I'm so concerned about inadvertently getting access to to a bunch of clients machines and so uh the, if, if we had 2fa that alone could be a game changer uh, but the fact that it's free and open source and it looks really good it looks really good so if you go to remotely.one uh remotely.one is their site and and, uh, and it, this could be a replacement for simple help so i've just begun playing with it so it does not come with any sort of endorsement or i'm not telling you to go use it or try it um but i came across it i've been playing with it 
it seems like it has some legs and something that I want to investigate further. Anytime I see an open source project that's not getting a lot of attention, I always have to ask myself, why? Is it a really great project that just nobody knows about? Or is it not so great of a project? Are there some shortcomings and everybody knows it and that's why nobody's talking about it? So we're going to get that discussion started. Everybody go to remotely.one. Check it out. Tell me what you think. Uh, it is, it's in uh, Noah beta. We'll call that. I'm testing it to see what I think. But it is, uh, it looks like it could be a real replacement to Simple Help, and I'm excited for that. The Gadget of the Week. This is a new segment we're doing. I'm excited about this. It's the Philips 60-watt USB laptop phone tablet car charger. Now, the thing is, every time I have a discussion about USB-C chargers, um, it, particularly when it relates to car chargers, everybody thinks phone. Everybody thinks phone and mobile and tablet. And that's just not where my mind goes at all. When USB-C, when the spec was first announced, and I saw what Intel and Apple were aiming for, I got very excited. Because from the time, for, as far back in my childhood as I can remember, I've been looking for the right power brick for the right device. That's been a challenge that, that, I, that I, I don't remember not having. And like everybody else, I have a box full of power cords that have been separated from their devices, and so I just have a bunch of extra power cords in case we need to power something and we lost the, the cord for it. Unlike most people, though, because I own an IT company, I don't have one box. I have like three racks full of boxes and 9-volt ones and 12-volt ones and 19-volt ones and Dell ones and HP ones and Lenovo or IBM, you know, went through a bunch of different iterations, so I have a couple of each of those. It's just a real pain. And so the idea that we would have one power supply that powers our laptops powers our tablets powers every kind of phone doesn't matter what kind you have unless you have an iphone uh, it works and charges all of the devices was really appealing to me but type c and the specifications couldn't be any more complicated or confusing if you tried and so one of the things that is overlooked or, or not explained or not talked about is the fact that there are different levels of power delivery um the the entry level power delivery does like five volts at, at two amps, which is what you would expect um, from your phone charger. Now, the great thing about that is it's going to work with most phones, but it's not going to charge your laptop. And the truth is, if I have this cable that fits into my laptop and indeed is providing power, but just not enough, it seems like it's a really stupid thing to have one in my car that can't charge all of my USB-C devices. Therefore, all of the Type-C adapters that I buy are 60 watts or greater, which means they can charge every laptop I've plugged them into. And I'm talking about the wall ones now. And when I started to search for car adapters, I went through one adapter after the other, trying to find one that would charge my, my laptop. I eventually settled on a very cheap Chinese one um, that I wasn't thrilled about, but it, was, it did provide 75 watts and did charge uh, my laptop. Now, I want to point out that there are different kinds of of, of Type-C charging for laptops. The, there are some laptops that are specifically designed to derive their power from uh, Type-C, and those laptops seem to work on just about everything I've tried them on. Um, there are other laptops, mostly in the early stages of Type-C, that really, they came with a factory power adapter, but they included the Type-C kind of as like an add-on, uh, and those I have found to be a little finicky. And so what I have found is if you're using something over 45 watts, excuse me, if you're using something over 60 watts, uh, the ones that have like the type C is kind of an add on, those will charge. If you have something that's lower than, than 60 watts, like there's, I have some Leviton um, type C wall outlets that go into the wall um, that actually install in the wall. Those won't charge that, that the, the, those older 
laptop, since I have an X270 that I, I use to kind of test that to see how, how does that work, because that's one that's a little bit more picky. Well, the Philips 60-watt USB-C car charger charges every laptop that I have plugged into it. It sells for $19.99. It's exceptionally well-built, far better built than the Chinese one that I had. The other thing is it has a single Type-C port instead of a Type-C and a regular USB Type-A, which I actually really prefer because I don't, I kind of question what the wiring inside of those little things looks like that it's able to do two conversions in the size of a, in the size of a, a little uh, a car adapter thing. I, I, I just, I like the idea that if I'm going to push 60 watts through a cable, I would like to believe that that entire device is dedicated to those 60 watts. Maybe that's just me. I'm not an electrical engineer and I don't play one on TV. Um, but for the, for the, for the car, I, I really like this device. It also has a single LED that tells you that the, there's power. So you, plug it in, you can see right away that there's there's power being uh, delivered right to the device. Again, exceptionally well built. I've tried uh, three or four different phones, a couple tablets. I've tried my HP laptop, the original X270 that I was talking about. Uh, I tried my wife's XPS. I tried my HP ProBook. All of them charge f just fantastically. It's just a fantastic device. So for 19 bucks, this is going to be the uh, the device that I, I use for charging in the car. It's going to be the, the device I just have for charging my cell phone because it's nice that I can just plug my laptop into it. By the way, I will add, uh, I the, with the Dell XPS has a weird quirk in that if the battery dies completely, if it totally goes dead, you can't boot the computer up with a Type-C adapter, at least the generation of XPS that I have. It requires you to use the, the Dell version, the little round uh, power supply, to get the computer to turn on. Then from there, once it, I guess, gets enough juice to be able to talk to the Type-C interface or whatever, then it has the opportunity to charge off Type-C. But if it, you'd let it dial the way, it won't charge. And um, and so it's so just something to be aware of. And uh, this 60 watt, the Philips 60 watt, did not solve that on the on the XPS or on a System 76 where I had a similar issue. So uh, Philips 60 watt USB-C car charger, I'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Open phones this hour, 855 uh, 450 no, it's 450-6624. Um, the Earn It Act, we have an update. Now, this is, man, does this get messy. So last week, as predicted, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted unanimously to replace the original Earn It Act with a new one. And as part of the markup, they also voted to approve Senator Patrick Lee's amendment, uh, which a lot of people are saying specifies that the Earn It Act cannot be used to block encryption. But that's, uh, it's hairy. Okay, so the new bill, uh, so, well, let me start with this. The old bill, if you want to if you want to get the breakdown of the original bill, we, we did that in AskNo172, ans.st slash 172. So I suggest that you start there and then come back to this episode if you're not familiar with what section 230 is and, and CSAM and all that. So brief, uh, I guess term definition, CSAM, basically child porn is that's the polite version of what we're what we're talking about. But the original bill said that they were going to create a committee and the committee was going to determine best practices. And if they if companies did not follow best practices, then they would lose Section 230 protection. The new bill, the new bill now still has the creation of a commission. And they're still tasking the commission to come up with best practices. However, it's they're 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 going to remove Section 230 anyway. 
because they believe that this is what's standing in the way of 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 arresting these people that are that are doing uh, that are that are perpetuating CSAM, I guess. Now, here's the thing. There's no evidence that Section 230 is protecting CSAM. There's no explanation as to how removing Section 230 protections would help prevent CSAM. They're just going to remove Section 230 protections. They're going to create this commission. Again, we're not waiting for the commission to come up with best practices and then removing Section 230. Now we're just saying that that's probably something we should do. So first we decided we needed a commission to determine best practices. Now we've decided that these companies should probably just lose their Section 230 uh, protections. However, the way that they're going about doing this is the specific change to the bill, I guess, as it were, is to say that if you promote, present, distribute, or solicit CSAM, then you lose your Section 230 protection. But what doesn't make any sense about this is because CSAM is already a federal crime, and federal crimes are already exempted from Section 230. That means that there was never it's it's already illegal to try to use to, to try to use your Section 230 protection if you're participating in in uh, in objectionable material. There are no cases that I could find in where they went to prosecute somebody and because of Section 230 protections prevented law enforcement from going after people who victimized children. I cannot find a single case of where that happened. Additionally, the DOJ literally has a congressional mandate to go after people and companies who engage in CSAM production and distribution, and they've done nothing, nothing. The DOJ was supposed to compile data, they were supposed to set goals, and they were supposed to eliminate CSAM, and they've done nothing. And instead of focusing on that, instead of focusing on the alternative bill from Senator Wyden, uh, Gillibrand, Casey, and Brown, that basically says, again, the DOJ should get serious about doing its job and go after these people that are breaking existing laws, and we should go arrest them because nobody wants people putting child porn on the Internet. That bill is getting no attention at all. Instead, we're talking about the Earn It Act. And most of the reforms that have been put into place in the past, use what's called the knowledge standard. In other words, basically, if you know something bad is happening on your site, you have a responsibility to do something about it. And so uh, what, what the change that they're making is, is they're saying that because encryption is called out specifically, if you want to keep your Section 230 protections, then you should probably just encrypt everything, which pre- prevents you from having knowledge that something wrong is happening on your site. The problem with that is this is going to worsen the problem. If the problem was that we couldn't get a hold of these people, again, I can't find any evidence of that, but if the problem is that we can't go after these people who are are distributing child porn because they have these protections under the law and so we want to start to roll back the, the things that they can hide behind, why in the world would we tell companies that if you don't encrypt everything and prevent yourself from having any knowledge of these actions then we won't come after you. It, 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 it just seems completely backwards. And then the, you take the other side of it, though. If you don't encrypt everything, then Earn It basically requires you to be responsible to track each and every user that's not using encryption. And that means that you'd have to verify each user, thereby eliminating things like anonymous logins and anonymous signups. You're, gonna get, you're going to get to a point, much like Google does, where when you sign up, they want, a, they want a, a phone number or a driver's license or a street address or something that they can tie to a person because they're responsible for who you are and what you do. 
And so, as usual with government, this is an unmitigated dumpster fire of a disaster. It doesn't accomplish what William Barr wanted. In fact, it arguably makes this worse because, well, I mean, depending on what side of the, the spectrum you're on, if you're on the side of the spectrum that says that we want more encryption rolled out, I guess you're going to get that because if, if I'm a company and my choices are to track each and every single user or just roll out encryption for everybody, I'm probably just going to roll out encryption for everybody. And then I can say, hey, I had no knowledge. What am I supposed to do? It's all encrypted. So I, I, I man, what a mess. But if they don't do that, if companies choose not to go that route and they don't choose to encrypt everything and they choose to leave everything out in the open and be responsible, then, you're go then your privacy is going to undoubtedly take a backseat to companies' liability because they're going to have to have something on file so that when the government comes knocking and saying, hey, this per Johnny here is doing something bad. Where does he live? Who is he? They can say, well, here's his street address. Here's his phone number. Here's what we have on him. Unbelievable. 855 450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Unify is announcing the EOL of Unify Video. Now this, man, again, more bad news. We covered earlier last year about Unify and their decision to stop supporting self-installs with their Unify Video platform. And they're going to something that they call Unify Protect, which is essentially you have to buy a network video recorder from Unify and use their device in order to store your recordings. Of course, the problem with that is if you have any, if you have any substantial amount of cameras, you start getting into 50, 70, 80 cameras and you want all of those to record. It's just not possible to do it on a tiny little device with a single hard drive. And their answer is, well, connect external storage. Yeah, sure. Um, we have set up Dell servers with RAID arrays so that we can get 40 and 50 terabytes worth of storage so that we could do this. And that option is going out the window January 1st. Additionally, they're shutting down video.ui.com, which was the cloud gateway, which we didn't use, but I'm sure there's other people out there and people are furious. Um, the fact that they sunsetted this, the, the, the cloud service means that all of these MSPs that were relying on Unify to do their security cameras are no longer going to have that option and they have to they have six months to get a new solution in place for their customers and i'll tell you what as an msp who install has a bunch of unify installs out there i'm not happy about this because now i have to go back and tell these customers hey you know what we're going to have to upgrade you to a uh, a new nvr because the company that made your old nvr is no longer going to support it after six months and there aren't a lot of the, the thing is, Unify didn't make fantastic cameras to begin with. It wasn't like there was anything particularly magical about their about their camera solution. It was just it was it was competitively priced. It was nice because you could install it on your own hardware, which means you could build out the NVR to the size that you wanted with reliable enterprise hardware. But those advantages are are mostly gone. And so what you're left with are basically some cheap RTMP cameras. That, by the way, are probably not going to receive updates after after they after they decommissioned the the ones that were specific for the Unify video. So we have started the process of transitioning over to access cameras. I've talked about this on the air. We've transitioned over to the Synology uh, surveillance station, which I couldn't be happier with. And the good news is that the Unify cameras, because they act as an RTMP camera, can be used with the Synology surveillance station. So at the end of the day, we're going to make it work. Um, and so if you have a Unify NVR, I highly suggest you go ahead and upgrade. Also, interestingly enough, uh, the access cameras show up at, on Home Assistant, which is pretty interesting. Matt calls from I Iowa. Hey, Matt, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Good. Uh, I had a couple of questions about Remotely. Okay. 
Uh, do you have a full interactive shell with the command line with re uh, with remotely? Yes. Yeah, they have remote shells. Mm -hmm. And it's, it actually behaves like your SSH into the box. It's not like a screen connect where you send the command, wait five minutes, and then it comes back. I would say it's in between. It it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's local. No, but you can tell it's you can tell that there's an agent running on the other end. But it's not it's not super delayed. It, I would describe it like uh, if you were using a com I would describe it like if you were using a, a a remote shell, but you were VNC'd into the remote box and had a local shell on the remote box. That's kind of how I would describe it. Okay. And uh, have you gotten a chance to test it out on Fedora 32? No. No, I've just started playing with it a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Uh, I tried playing with it over or the late night chat we had on uh, Southeast Linux Fest. Uh huh. And it didn't even install correctly. So Whoa. I was wondering if you ran into that problem too. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I mention an alternative? Sure. Uh, mesh, mesh central, mesh central. So it looks like it's a windows 95 app. It all works in the web. Uh, I have an Ansible playbook that installs it telegraphing Grafana and InfluxDB, So you can get all the pretty charts too. Okay. All right. Then this is another open source product. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and it has a full interactive shell. It has plugins for running PowerShell bash and batch scripts. Great. And I've had good luck with it. Uh, I've played around with a Mac agent. It's a little clunky, but that's more to do with Mac OS than it does with Mesh. Uh, Linux, you just copy-paste a shell command, and it downloads everything for you. Uh, Windows, you just download the EXE and hit install. Very cool. Hey, I appreciate the call. Hey, thanks. Thanks for making great content. Yeah, thank you. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Now, Fedora made a decision to make ButterFS the default file system for its desktop variants, and that has been approved. Now, I've been very critical of ButterFS in the past. At the, at the end of the day, I trust Red Hat. I trust Fedora. If a $34 billion company says that this is the right direction to go for a desktop file system, then I need to be all ears. And so I'm not going to put a bunch of critical data on it yet, but I either need to validate my previous experiences or I need to move on. Uh, this comes from LWN.net. The ButterFS file system has a long and sometimes turbulent history. LWN first wrote about it in 2007. It offers features not found on any other mainline Linux file system, but reliability and performance problems have prevented widespread adoption. There's at least one company that's using ButterFS on a massive scale, though, and that's Facebook. At the 2020 Open Source Summit in North America virtual event, ButterFS developer Joseph Basic described why and how Facebook has invested deeply in ButterFS and what the remaining challenges are. So I've invited Joseph Basic, core developer for ButterFS, Neil Gompa, Fedora contributor and developer, and Chris Murphy Fedora, from the Fedora Workstation working group on to talk about ButterFS. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Noah. So let's start here. I want to just reset all of my expectations and all of my previous uh, bias for ButterFS, and, and, and I'll just start from the beginning. What is ButterFS and what differentiates it from other file systems? So ButterFS is uh, kind of a next generation file, Linux file system. Uh, it's kind of built on this idea of um, copy on write, where we have 
instead of historical file systems where they had a log where you'd add changes, ButterFS writes to a new location. And with this underlying ability, it allows us to do things like snapshotting and uh, a bunch of different interesting things relatively cheaply. And along with all of that, we have some built-in volume management stuff. So you have built-in RAID and uh, we also have like a lot of interesting side features like compression and the ability to like um, modify data as it goes down. So, you know, for example, we'll be adding encryption in the next six months. And um, yeah, so it's it's just kind of a, a new iteration on file systems for Linux, kind of bringing in some of more modern features that are useful for a variety of workloads. I want to dig into the encryption just a little bit. That would be an important feature for me. What does it look like to get encryption working on ButterFS, and when do you expect that to be rolled out into production? So the encryption looks a lot like the um, FS Verity stuff, so um, or the FS Crypt. So ext4 has this infrastructure in place, and so you can enable this, and it, it encrypts file names and encrypts data, that sort of thing. And so the ButterFS stuff initially will tie into this the same infrastructure, and so you'll get encrypted um, file names and data on a per subvolume or per file system uh, basis. And like I said, this is the infrastructure already exists, and ButterFS already has the ability to tag data with different encoding schemes. So it's really just a matter of wiring it up and like making sure all of the ButterFSy things work, like. You know, you can't really, um, you don't want to decrypt data to re-encrypt it for like send and receive. So there's kind of like a lot of side work that needs to go along there. Um, Omar Sandoval uh, is working on that and the plan is to have that shipped in the next six months and we'll obviously be rolling out into production in, internally inside Facebook once it, it rolls. Are there any downsides to using encryption? Yeah. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's one of those things where you trade you're trading CPU for um, data security, right? So as you write, it has to transform the the pages before it writes it to the disk, and it also has to carve it up differently. So you kind of get, end up with a lot more metadata describing your data, which means more putting the data back together when you read it. So it's going to slow down reads, not just because you know, it has to decrypt, but also because it has to put together more pieces of information. So there's like everything with file systems, there's always a trade-off. Who is the target audience for ButterFS? The uh, target audience is kind of really anybody, honestly. Like right now, the there are workloads that don't work really well. So, you know, kind of the classic example is uh, VM stores because ButterFS tends to be relatively fragmented. Now you could do things like turn off data cow, which also disables checksumming for that. So like again, it's one of those trade-offs. But uh, for normal users, it's really handy because you have built-in checksumming in ButterFS. So it kind of like gives you this extra layer of protection in that you can detect when things are going wrong and you know restore from backups if your hard drive is failing, that sort of thing. Uh, snapshots are really nice for developers being able to like iterate on things quickly. It's also really nice for us um, who use containers. You can easily snapshot a container and make changes and iterate quickly. 
so it, it works really well. I would say, you know, kind of things that where it doesn't work so well is the VM store, backing store use case and databases, just because databases really, if they had their way, they wouldn't talk to a file system at all. They would just talk to the disk. The file system is just there out of necessity and they tend to do everything that a file system does already. Um, the extra things like checksumming and, you know, all that sort of fancy stuff that ButterFS does, the databases don't really need. So it just adds overhead to them. And so we tend to not use ButterFS for databases because we're just looking for like raw performance. Are there any large scale production examples of ButterFS and what have been the positive sides to them switching and what have been some problems maybe that they've experienced? Yeah, so I, um, I work for Facebook and the uh, I've given this talk a few times recently that uh, we have millions of machines on ButterFS currently. It's our the main way we do our containers inside Facebook and have done it for probably three years. So all of our core features are built around this, um, not only because of the snapshotting subvolume capabilities, but the compression. Compression really deals with our write amplification issues that we have on solid state drives. You know, the less you have to write, the less write amplification you have. So it makes our hard drives last longer, or, you know, solid state drives last longer. Um, the other thing is, um, it's the only file system that we've tested with IO control support for C groups. Um, XFS has support, but we've never needed to use it for XFS, so we don't know if it works or not. Um, it doesn't work on ext4 so uh, there's a lot of things inside our production environment that rely on cgroups and a lot of other things and butterfs fits into this this uh, our workload really really well would you consider butterfs to be a a stable file system and is it something that is ready to be put into uh, into production yeah i mean i'm probably the, low, the most pessimistic file system developer like of the ButterFS people and of the Linux file system community. Uh, I, I really don't like it when people use things that aren't really well tested. Um, and ButterFS has consistently surprised me as to how well it's worked in production and how stable it's been. There's That's not to say that it's perfect. I mean, you know, uh, as one of the people that has to maintain it and has to deal with users, I know where all the bodies are buried. Uh, that being said, most of them are buried pretty deep and hard to get to. So, <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the easiest way for a user to get an accurate calculation of free disk space? Uh, ButterFS file system usage. It's a command. You just run ButterFS file system usage and then point out the path and it breaks it up really nicely for you. Uh, the thing about ButterFS is it's you know, it's very, very different, right? We uh, break up the, di we you, know, you can have multiple disks and we break up the disks into different chunks, data and metadata. And uh, we only do that on demand, right? So you can have chunks for data and you can have chunks for metadata and you can have space on the disk that's not allocated either way. And so the file system usage thing can kind of give you a guesstimate and it's basically like, how much unallocated space plus how much space is free in the data chunks that you have. Um, but again, the kind of the trick is, is if you have a metadata heavy workload and you end up exhausting metadata, you can like 
think that you have plenty of space when you really don't. The kind of classic example that I've had recently is um, we had some uh, developer boxes that's got too many copies of the website, which is relatively metadata heavy because we inline really like so most data you know goes in data ranges unless the file is relatively small and we store it directly on the metadata. And so you know with a code repository with a bunch of text files, they tend to fit in metadata. And so people kind of got their box, their hard drive completely full, fully allocated, so there was no unallocated space. And they only had a few gigs of metadata space free, which got filled up with these extra copies of the source repository. And so while they had 50 or 60 gigs of data free, they had no metadata space free. And so they were unable to write to the disk. And that's kind of like the classic example of like, you know, a user comes in and says, I have plenty of space free. Why isn't this working? Well, it's because you exhausted metadata. Can you elaborate a little bit on how metadata is stored separately from uh, from regular data? Again, I, I apologize. You have to excuse my ignorance. I, I, I don't know a lot about file systems, but um, how, how does that work and how does that compare to something like ext4 or zfs or, or ext3 where if I just open the disk uh, utility, it just tells me how much space I have free. I don't see anything delineating a difference between metadata and, and regular data. Is that something that's different with ButterFS? Yeah, it's different with ButterFS. Uh, so for example, ext4 is a really, really easy example. So you know, if you've ever done MKFS, like yourself made a new ext4 file system or ext3 file system, you know it takes a long time. Um, it takes, you know, depending on how big the disk is, it can take several minutes. That's because it's writing out all of its metadata at MKFS time. So it's, it goes along the disk and it, it carves it up into chunks and it writes out what's called a group descriptor every you know 256 meg or something like that. And these group descriptors have inode tables. And so that's when you make the file system, that's as many inodes as you get to have forever, which is why things like DF minus I exist. It tells you how many inodes you have free because when you make the file system that it pre-creates all of the inodes you could ever have in the file system. Um, with ButterFS, it's completely dynamic. So when you make the file system, it's going to take the same amount of time every time because all we have to do is create the, the initial roots of the trees for our metadata. So the trees are basically what keeps track of where data is and file names and that sort of thing. Um, because it's completely dynamic, that means it's like as you add more files, it obviously takes up more metadata. So there's new entries in this tree. And as I said, you can store smaller files directly into the metadata. So that also means that you can end up with um, data sitting in the metadata, in the metadata area. Um, so as you grow the file system, add more file extents, we also store checksums. So all the checksums of all the data are stored in metadata. So all of this is stored in the metadata area. And that's kind of how you end up with like really large, um, much larger metadata sizes for ButterFS compared to something like ext4 or XFS. What would a user notice if he or she runs out of inodes? And do I understand then that ButterFS circumvents this issue by allocating inodes dynamically? Right. So DF minus I for ButterFS is just going to return nothing because you don't have pre-allocated list. You for ext3 or ext4, you would get the same thing. You go to touch a file and it says you're out of space. And if you have 
plenty of data space, the user will be just as confused. It's just, this doesn't ever happen. And I worked at Red Hat a long time ago, probably 10 years ago. And it's, that did, that does, this does happen. Like it happens on occasion. It's just very, very rare. You end up with a, like a user that does things like, like, like with mail servers, right? You know, you end up with like a bunch of files for every individual email or whatever, and they would run out of inodes. And so while it looks like they have plenty of space, they don't have enough inodes left in their inode tables and would return eno space. ButterFS gets away with this by dynamically allocating on demand. But the trade-off, again, trade-offs, <laughs> the trade-off is, is you end up with more metadata usage and it kind of is trickier to tell the user how much space they have because it can change based on their workload. Do users running out of metadata is that does that happen less frequently than you saw people running out of inodes at Red Hat? Yeah, I'd say it probably happens much less frequently. You know, I, these things don't generally happen, right? The I can probably recount a handful of you like. You know, I actually like used to answer phone calls at Red Hat as support. <laughs> so that was like when I was a teenager. And I probably had to say DF minus I once every three months, right? And inside of Facebook with ButterFS in production, I've had to deal with metadata exhaustion uh, this past December. And then maybe, maybe twice last year, uh, maybe like three or four times in the last three or four years. Are there any bugs in ButterFS that can't be fixed uh, at, at, at current time? And if so, why? Mm, no, I wouldn't say anything can't be fixed. I mean, there's things that I'm working on, obviously. So the going getting back to this metadata exhaustion thing, kind of the way we, we resolve it is by balance balancing, which is essentially moving data and metadata around in order to free up chunks in order to give us some more unallocated space. And at these really extreme, extreme uh, metadata exhaustion cases, I've seen that uh, it's we can't we don't have enough space to run the balance to get us out of the situation. So there's like there's that dark corner that I'm I'm currently working on, but it's not unfixable. It's just you know reproducing it and figuring it out and getting it fixed. When you make these fixes, when you submit bug fixes, uh, are they backported to the LTS kernel branches? So we do, um, we're, we use the uh, fixes tag in the Linux kernel. So it's, that's how they, they know which stable branch to go back into. And so for big things like this, I, I won't tag it with fixes because it's kind of dangerous, right? The, it kind of builds, all of the stuff builds on itself. Uh, the only thing that we will really like actively say, hey, this needs to be backported is things like panic fixes or you know glaring issues where it's like, wow, this was actually wrong and it can go back safely. Uh, but generally speaking, stuff like this, once I roll this fix, it'll likely be you know 10, 20 patches. And that's just not really safe to do automatically. You really need a, like a ButterFS developer sitting there saying, yes, this is okay to backport. Who is appointed to submitting uh, ButterFS fixes to the kernel for patching? So I, I 
I mean, it's an open source project, right? So basically anybody does it. Uh, there's, you know, I'm a pretty heavy comp- contributor, but there's a bunch of guys at Suze, like uh, Felipe Manana and, uh, you know, Dave Sturba, who works for Suze. He's the, the actual maintainer for ButterFS. Uh, Nikolai, he does a bunch of stuff. He runs around, cleans things up and and fixes bugs. Quo Wenro does a lot of the Q group work. You know, Omar Sandoval at Facebook does a bunch of work. We're hiring people. You know, there's there's tons of people that do work. Can renaming a file cause the loss of the entire uh, file uh, file system's data? I've heard the claim that it's not an atomic operation, which means that admins and and this is what admins and applications expect. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> this is uh, uh, like a big file system thing. Um, so a long time ago, oh, essentially what what you're kind of getting at is applications would write to a temporary file and then rename the, so like a configuration file, for example, right? So you write the new file and then you rename the temporary file to the configuration file. The application is expecting that either the old configuration file will stay or the new one will be there, right? Because they expect that the rename is the atomic thing, but that's not actually how POSIX works. So you can rename this file and we can update the name, but not actually write out the data. So the applications were trying to get around using fsync to make sure that the data made it to disk. So this is the like the famous zero length file thing that XFS does, because XFS very strictly adheres to POSIX. It's perfectly okay to update the file name without having written the data out. And so you'd end up with the file being empty because the application didn't run fsync. So the, F- the application is doing the wrong thing. But with ext3, the way it worked was every five seconds, everything went to disk no matter what. So it was, to the application's point of view, atomic because the data had to be written out at the same time the metadata had to be written down. So it, you did get this behavior. Um, with, but ext4 kind of cheated and kept this behavior and said like, hey, if there's dirty data when I rename, flush the data first and then do the rename. So it kind of fakes the, the Thomas, I can't say that word, fakes being atomic. Um, and ButterFS followed suit. We just, you know, it's a better user experience, but it's it's not what POSIX says. If you care about your data, you need to F-sync. I think XFS still <laughs> will let you get a zero length file because they're they're pretty adamant about following POSIX. What is the write barrier message and what can happen to data when this message appears? Uh, I'm not familiar with this message. Um, so ju- going off the wiki here, it says, um, this is a severe condition which can result in full file system corruption, not just losing or corrupting data that was being written at the time of the power cut or crash. I guess uh, to rephrase my question then, um, have you have you come across this at all, or is this maybe one of those things that you were referring to at the beginning where you said there maybe are some bodies, but they're buried very, very deep? This is one of those things that it maybe happens in in extreme use cases, but it's not something that is prevalent or common. Okay, so I, I think I know what you So write barriers are a, a mechanism that file, that disks have, right? So 
the way file systems maintain consistency is that we write out, for example, with ButterFS, we write out all the metadata. And, but the disk is, fr like, is free to say, yeah, yeah, we totally wrote that stuff. And it can lie to us, right? Like it, it can say, yeah, that made it to disk, but it, it's just sitting in memory, in the disk's memory, right? And so there's this mechanism called um, uh, a flush, like a write barrier, right? And that's where we say, no, no, seriously, like make sure it's actually really on disk. So ButterFS does this thing where it writes out the metadata and then it sends the command to the disk that says, make sure this has actually hit the disk so that, you know, after power failure, it'll still be there. And once that command completes, that's when you know your power fail safe. And after that point, we write the super block, which points to all the new metadata, and then we we um, write barrier again. And so, if your device doesn't support write barriers, um, or you turn off write barriers, which you can't actually do anymore, but you used to be able to, if you turn this off, then this breaks how file systems, all file systems, ButterFS, ext4, xfs maintain data integrity across power fail. So if you if your disk isn't performing this action properly, or if you've disabled it for whatever reason, like say, for example, a, a legitimate reason would it be is if you have like battery backed disks and you're never gonna worry about power, power failure. Um, but if you've disabled this for whatever reason and you do have a power failure, all data consistency, metadata consistency goes out the window. And that, that exists for every file system, not just ButterFS. In the wiki, uh, I, I came across this. It says, ButterFS is not well tested in real life situations yet. If you have a broken file system, it's probably better to use ButterFSCK with advice from one of the ButterFS developers, just in case something goes wrong. But even if it does go wrong badly, you've still got backups, right? Um, is this maybe outdated on the wiki? It sounds like the way that you're using it at Facebook, it we're clearly above this because it's being used in real life situations. Is this a function of just the wiki is outdated or is this still accurate? Yeah, no, it's totally just the wiki's out of date. And that's one of the things that's come up in this whole Fedora discussion is that a lot of the documentation on the wiki just is either wrong or it's out of date, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, the thing about ButterFS check is relatively right. So, you know, if something goes wrong in your file system, the ButterFS check will can repair some stuff, but really, really bad corruption. It still is kind of a manual process and unfortunately does kind of require a little bit of um, magic. So, And I'd like to step in for a second here to just add a comment about ButterFisk. Um, ButterFisk, you know, at least in my experience, and Joseph can correct me if I'm wrong. It preserve it, it. It aims for file system consistent integrity and consistency over everything else, and that even is potentially at the cost of your data. So, like, if you're going to do butterfisk with the repair flag, which is what people tend to talk about when they talk about this is scary and dangerous, and don't do this without advice from a developer. It's it's because like its priorities are completely the opposite of every other feature in ButterFS. Um, every other feature in the file system is intended to repair, self-heal, or whatnot, while preserving the integrity of both the metadata and the data. Butterfisk repair is merely about getting the file system back into working order. So, I mean, Joseph, feel free to um, 
expand or correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's been my impression as I've been as a the few times I've had to use it. Yeah, no, that's that's totally what it is, and it's the same for every file system that has a repair. Like the only thing that we know anything about is the metadata, and we will. It, there's a always the possibility that she'll mess something up, which is why like ext4 has like this rewind feature where it can like write out what it's done in case you want to go back, and why butterfs has rescue options. And so the the way I always approach it is first use butterfs rescue, which is going to pull all the di- all the data that it can it can find off of the disk, and once you've done that, then we can run butterfs check to like repair it and maybe you get it back to where it was or maybe you lose something um, but at least once you've done the rescue you you have something and then we can move on from there does butterfs include any way to send a copy of the data to another remote system yeah so we've had send and receive for probably eight years nine years now uh, it was actually added by a shop that had that had to support both butterfs and zfs so when they wrote it, they wrote it with the intention of being able to interchange, like send, like the send part is copy a subvolume into a, a a file or a stream, and the receive part is apply that to another file system on another box or on the same box, and so they wrote this with the idea that they would be able to butterfs receive a butterfs send stream onto zfs and vice versa. And so, like it, it's it works a lot like the ZFS stuff does. At least from what I know, I don't know much about ZFS. And uh, but yeah, it, it works pretty well. We use it in production. The you know, like I said, we're pretty container heavy, so all of the updates for containers are shipped around as send streams. You you know you update the the application, and then you do the butterfs send to get the diff between the snapshot and the the new version. And then you have this much smaller diff that you can copy around and apply to, you know, all the boxes that need the updates. So it works relatively well. There's some enhancements that need to be done. Omar Sandoval has done a lot of work with that. That's kind of what he's working on now is do the the wiring up the things so that uh, we can do send and receive with encryption without requiring the user to decrypt and send the decrypted data around. Are there any GUI utilities available to manage ButterFS? Uh, that would be a question for everybody else. I have I don't use any GUIs. So there's a few. Um, I, I there aren't that many. I think largely due to a function of lack of visibility of the file system. But um, I have I found a couple that I'm playing with personally. Um, not going to say specifically whether it's great or not, but so far it's been okay. Um, Butter Manager. Um, is a Qt5 based tool written in Python that actually lets you manage various um, configuration options of the Butterfest thing, including setting up subvolume snapshots and stuff like that. Um, the time shift tool that um, uh, I believe Linux Mint ships, uh, that tool has a Butterfest mode, though it is currently set up for a very specific subvolume arrangement. It should be relatively straightforward to port it to a different one. Um, it manages snapshots and can do send and receive. Um, automatically for you for transferring uh, them as offsite backups. Um, there's Snapper from SUSE, which uh, can be configured uh, with your with the package manager. There's hooks for DNF, for Zipper. Um, I believe somebody wrote a hook for Pacman uh, and Apt as well. And so, like these, 
you can integrate with that, so it'll take snapshots whenever you do package management actions, and then you can use those to roll back and stuff like that. Um, so there's a few out there. Um, there's uh, it, it, it. There aren't that many, but the few that are out there, uh, there's there's definitely opportunities to to make these features more accessible from the desktop environment. Going along with that, what distros natively support ButterFS or installed on ButterFS? What would be the best distro to play with and test ButterFS? Uh, I mean, currently, like, you can still install and test ButterFS with Fedora. Like, the what Neil and Chris are trying to push to are is making the default choice ButterFS, but you've been able to install ButterFS on that forever. Um, and the fact that Fedora keeps up with the upstream kernels means that Fedora is a pretty good system to use ButterFS with because the, the built-in kind of uh, tooling for doing installs works relatively well with ButterFS. And like I said, we, we, we send major fixes. The upstream, I mean, we, the um, ButterFS developers, send major fixes to the stable kernels, and that's kind of what gets pulled into Fedora. And so they stay up to date pretty well. Um, obviously, SUSE has been doing it for much, much longer. So they have some of like extra tooling around ButterFS. Uh, they, I think they've had it in OpenSUSE since 2014. Um, and obviously, a lot of the upstream ButterFS developers are employed by SUSE. So you have a lot more eyeballs on that, whereas with Fedora, it's they're just getting the benefit of the upstream work because uh, um, by and large, um, like I don't pay attention to it and there are no Red Hat employees that, that do ButterFS work. But I, you know, between the two of them, they're, they're both pretty solid as far as testing it out. Neil Gompo, Joseph Basic, Chris Murphy. The, the the file system is ButterFS. You guys have given me a lot to think about. Um, I have uh, I've not been I've been very critical of ButterFS over the years. I am going to give it another shot and and take a look at it. And I thank you all for taking the time to come here and explain this and talk about uh, this file system and and what its advantages are and how it's being used in real life. I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about ButterFS, and I I appreciate you taking the time to clear some of that up. Yep. Thanks, man. You're yeah. Welcome. Thank you. 855-450-6624. George, you've got the last couple of minutes. Thanks for hanging in there, buddy. No, no problem. It was very interesting. But to get to the question, um, be short. I'm pretty much trying to do what you guys do with uh, Destination Linux using OBS and Zoom. Um, I've seen a few tutorials online, but it seems to be the problem is if someone drops out or if you – someone else comes in it kind of throws off the yeah. dropping is there a way that you guys deal with that yeah the way we deal with it is we ask everybody to keep their cameras off and then people bomb us and we have to restart the segments over so it is a problem the the the, the professional correct way to do it would be to have each individual zoom uh remote participant come in on a separate machine and then capture that and then you would pin that person's video on each machine and then you would hdmi capture those individual machines obviously it's a very expensive way to do it but that is how you would ensure that you have a full 1920 by 1080p uh, picture that is that is being captured from each participant and then inside of obs you would combine them the way that we're doing it on destination linux is not really the best way to do it but it is an inexpensive way to do it and that is we're just screen capping the zoom window 
Okay. Well, then since I I might have been one of those people that dropped in in the middle of the segment, I apologize for that. No, no worries. We appreciate having you both as a Destination Linux listener and for calling into this show. I appreciate it. Have a, have a great rest of your week. Hey, the music means we're out of time. That's it for this episode. You can keep up to the latest by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. You can follow me personally at Colonel Linux. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JTR producer. We'll be back next Tuesday uh, at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.